Good evening, everyone. Firstly, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Victoria, where I am on the lands of the Wurundjeri and throughout Australia, and pay my respects to them, their culture, and their elders past, present, and future. Tonight is our third webinar in this four-part series focusing on inclusive reporting. We're taking this in undertaking this in collaboration with the Scanlon Foundation Research Institute, the Walkley Foundation, and Media Diversity Australia. My name is Anthea Hancox, and I'm the CEO of the Scanlon Foundation and the Scanlon Foundation Research Institute. Tonight's session will look at the challenge will look at the challenge on journalists to expand their audiences. I am not a journalist, but I'm delighted to be accompanied by two guests who are also not journalists. In our first two sessions, we did hear from journalists, but the media universe includes so many other facets, such as public relations, social media, accessing interviewees and storytelling. And this is, this is what we're going to focus on today. So let me introduce you to our accomplished and informed guests. Asanti Ababakar is a young community activist. She's been involved in encouraging inclusive thinking and actions across our society while being a champion for her heritage and the issues that matter to minority communities. Jen Sharp is the founder of Think HQ, which began as a public relations firm and is now an integrated community communications agency where diversity is both deliberate and natural. I'm delighted to welcome them both and look forward to our discussion. For this webinar, we're going to structure the conversation around a series of questions. These questions also form the information sheet that you will receive after this webinar. And please, please feel free to log your questions in the chat function as we go along, and we will get to them in about 30 minutes or so. We have plenty of time to explore your issues. So let's kick off with the first question, and I'll go to Asante first. Asante, why does it matter that media, media presenters rep, are representative of, your, of the community? Okay, thanks, Anthea. So I believe the media has a responsibility to represent all corners of our society. Um, in terms of the bias and unbiased that we have in our communities, media presenters need to tell the stories from all uh, factions. How can it be fair to only represent one group when we have 25% of us who are immigrants and 50% of us who have at least one parent who's born overseas? I think in order to look more authentic and to be more credible, we need to have people that represent the whole faith of Australia. Thanks, Asante. Jen, what, what's your response to that? Um, hi, Anthea, and hi, Asante, and hello to everybody. Um, I, I looked at this um, question through three different lenses. So the first one um, is the biz business lens. And I think first and foremost, it's going to be really important and it is really important for media platforms to be able to keep as many people reading their content as humanly possible. Um, that makes good business sense. So with the pr proliferation of all the different platforms that exist, I would have thought it's in the best in interest of our mainstream media outlets to really think about how to reach that broad Australian audience, which as Asante mentioned, includes 25% of people who were born overseas. And then someone um, 
just nearly 50% of people who have um, one parent who were born overseas. So it just makes really good business sense. Um, from my perspective with my business, it's been running for 11 years now. And for the first five years, I didn't have any um, cultural diversity in my staff. And when I started to understand that as a communications industry, unless I actually broadened my own lens in terms of my ability to be able to reach all Australians, I was missing out on um, a really good um, business opportunity. So I proactively set about um, employing people from um, culturally diverse backgrounds. And I was looking at the staff survey the other day, and we've now got um, 29% of our 57 um, person team having been born overseas. And just having that diversity within our workplaces meant that the skills and the reach that we have within communities has been incredibly good for my business. So I come, I come at this from having that really personal experience. It just makes sense. Um, the other lens I look at it through is through the social cohesion lens. Um, we have, we need to have a diverse um, representation within the media um, because it means that there's a greater opportunity to break down unconscious bias and sometimes the casual racism that can exist in workplaces that lack diversity, and that includes media outlets as well. And even from an ideological lens, I was a politics student, so I'm very aware of the role of um, media um, as the fourth estate in a liberal democracy. It, the, the media is the guardian of public interest and therefore the media should aim to be able to reach the broader public, and that includes a diverse Australia. Um, and I also interviewed um, a number of my staff who were overseas born um, in preparation for today, and I just wanted to read out um, uh, one comment and that um, I would like to see in Australian news more representation of multiculturalism and Indigenous cultures so that we as Australians can have a better understanding of each other we need to be more representative to demonstrate that we appreciate diversity. And this way we can have a harmonious relationship with new and emerging multicultural communities. Thanks, Jen. I am interested a little bit, um, might just unpick that a little bit more as in the presenters of news or entertainment or, or programming that we see on television um, is, um, I think I read just recently in actual fact that not a lot of young people actually are watching mainstream television or reading mainstream news. But I am quite interested in whether or not you still think it's important that those presenters represent a reasonable amount of visible diversity on our screens and, and why, why that might be of value. So um, Jen or Asante, what, what's your, what do you think about those actual presenters that we might be seeing? It's... Uh, are you happy for me to go, Asante? Yeah, yeah, that's right. I, I think um, it's the most visual representation of Australian media. So if you have all white presenters, then it acts uh, as a barrier for people um, from diverse backgrounds from actually wanting to, to enter into the media space. So um, another comment that I got um, from one of my staff is I really haven't tried to work in the media because in the back of my mind, I've always thought that it would be very hard to be represented in the media if you're from multicultural backgrounds. And I think if it's all just white presenters, then that acts as a, as a visual and a perceived barrier. 
Uh, Asanti, what, what about, what do you or your friends think about the people that they do see when they look at television and see the sorts of presenters that are there? What, what's their views about that? Um, I feel like the conversations I have with my friends around media presenters wouldn't necessarily be um, about them personally per se. It would be more about what they're talking about, what they the way they communicate, the wording they're using. Um, when they speak about diverse populations. And that's the issue that we have. Um, or for example, um, if topics or conversations relating to matters of diverse populations were spoken about by people who aren't even from that community, it makes it hard to see them as credible or as authentic as it would be if it was coming from someone that was from that particular background. Um, that's our main issue, I guess. Uh, for example, um, let's say, uh, you know, we have a reporter talking about what's happening in uh, Afghanistan. And they go into detail and they speak about the horrors and the traumas that people are going through and about their experience, but it doesn't, it just doesn't sound as good as it would have sounded or looked if it came from someone that was an Afghani uh, presenter or someone that came from similar regions, you know? Um, and those types of people, those types of presenters would be better at handling and tackling those types of topics because it's something that they are familiar with. Yeah. That's, that's what I think. Right, thank, thank you, Asante. Now, Jen, you and I have talked um, a little bit because I know it's something that you're passionate about, about um, PR agencies and communications agencies where their networks are not broad enough so that the people that they're putting forward as talent, if you like, um, for whatever it might be for, uh, you know, roles in advertising or roles in, in other types of programming or even case studies um, are, are being drawn from a very limited pool. Um, do you can you um, just sort of elaborate a bit on what you think the issues are with that? Yeah, absolutely. So, one of the things I'm really passionate about with inclusive communications and I'd love to be able to see in the media is people from diverse backgrounds getting represented um, across all media stories. And the case study that I love to use or the example that I love to use is um, uh, working families in lockdown. When media... Um, profiles working families in, in lockdowns, I always look to see, is there any diversity? And if you kind of went by um, Victorian media, you'd think that working families only actually existed in Carlton and Albert Park. And I know that it's easy to send a photographer out to those two areas. It's very close, but it's also really, really quick to get to Footscray as well. And I think part of the issue is um, PR does um, pitch in a lot of stories to media and um, PR is one source of where stories come from and social media is another. And um, But I'll focus on PR to start. The, the issue is, is that when we as a business um, work with a client and they want to pitch in uh, a case study story, um, the easiest way to tap into identifying case studies to pitch into media is through family and friends. So if the communications agency or the PR agency itself doesn't have any diversity, the 
the likelihood of them pitching in case studies that are from more diverse backgrounds is basically very limited or just not going to happen. And that's why you end up with white Australian families being profiled in these stories um, all the time. And so the, the push for me to actually have more diversity in my business means that when we do a call out to staff to say, hey, does anyone have um, uh, friends who are a family that have school-age kids that want to get profiled by the age because the journalist is interested, all of a sudden now we can tap into families from Afghanistan and Vietnam, Vietnam and all different kinds of countries, and we wouldn't have had that um, capacity to be able to network and, and reach out. So, so that's a kind of a classic example of how I think PR and the lack of diversity in our industry um, perpetuates the lack of diversity in general news. Yeah. Um, and then on the advertising side of things, um, it's really extraordinary when um, we go to put together pitch decks for clients, actually accessing diverse imagery of a, of a diverse Australia is incredibly difficult um dark skin people are, uh, photos of dark skin people for example tend to be african-american and, and be sourced from american stock imagery there's very few first nations images that depict um work uh you know just working in an office or a health worker or, or whatever it may be and so the, the the advertising decks that get pulled together that get pitched in for approval tend to be quite white because of the lack of imagery and then that feeds into um, talent agencies as well that tend to reflect what um, communication businesses are actually asking for in terms of talent so it's all perpetuating okay. itself and that and that also then reinforces that that's okay that that's an appropriate thing to pitch rather than trying to be any broader than that and yeah. it is it is interesting so from um, you know Asante's talking about the authenticity, that it's really important to have of, um, voices of particular areas talking about their particular issues, but it's just as important to have people from a whole diverse range of different backgrounds talking about all sorts of things that affect Australia and not necessarily specific just to an issue related to them in, in regard to their country of heritage. So I think this is a really interesting point. Um, so Asante, I just wanted to come to you and to, to ask about your experiences with the media, because uh, some people may come to you and say, what's your opinion about X, Y, and Z? Um, how, how do you find that, that those sort of media approaches are received? And have you had any um, personal experiences with the media that you think you'd like to share in this regard? Yes. Um, so... I've had, I definitely had had personal experiences with the media, some not the best. <laughs> um, I, I guess my my relationship with the media is kind of um, a bit 50-50 in terms of good and bad. And it's because I do see the pros in media. I know that it's really good for raising awareness for certain things, especially, um, you know, events happening that are tragic or events that are happening that are uplifting. I feel like it's important to, to know the news, to know what's happening around you, um, to, I guess, see what's happening around the world. But um, in the particular situation that I was in when it came to media, I've it's been more associated with, let's get the token black girl to speak into the camera 
so we have diversity and um I have had speak I have had conversations or been um interviewed by um SBS twice as I already told you last time and um and it was it was for a good uh, a good um cause um the first one was in relation to uh it was at an event that was at for a sister's high tea a Muslim sister's high tea and it was about I think it was about representation of Muslims in the media um but I my words were taken out of context and it seemed like I was uh which I am but it was seemed like I was excessively pro-LGBT like I don't even know how that the whole message of what I was trying to say was completely put onto that so then when people from my community are watching it they're like huh and I was like you don't get it <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to say that we need to respect all groups and so my my what I was trying to say was lost in translation and then again on my second experience with um with the media I was interviewed for at my at my place of work um and they were basically asking us like how how does it feel to be a person who is a of refugee or migrant background, um, finding work. Um, are you appreciative that your boss has given you a job? And it made it look like um, it kind of, what's the best word? The best way to explain it is it diminished my capabilities and my skills and my status as a person and made it to just someone that's um, of, of, of a foreign background, if that makes sense. You know, um, me working, my, my place working at that particular job wasn't even as a trainee. It was as uh, an actual employee. But in order to, I guess, fit the narrative of, um, of the story, they wanted someone that represented the refugee straight off the boat mentality uh, or perspective. And I couldn't deliver that. And they were upset, you know. Um, I remember being told, just look into the camera and say you're a, you're a Retrian. And I was like, I'm not even a Retrian. <laughs> like, what is this? What is this? Um, so yeah, I've had some bad experiences um, and I've had some good where um, it has given me some modeling opportunities um, to represent my community. And I really liked that. It was really fun. It was empowering. Um, However, it's just, that's what I mean by 50-50. Sometimes yeah. it's good, sometimes it is, it's not the best. But I, it's all about, in general, it's all about perspective. And I feel like the only true way to understand the perspective of a diverse population is to have, like it would have been better to have had someone who was of similar background interviewing me because they would understand or someone that is, has done their research on the, on the background or the person, that person's diversity and are culturally sensitive and aware of their words. Yeah. Um, that's really important. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> yeah, that, that's my experience. <laughs> Thank you very much, Asante. Um, Jen, there's a couple of questions which are probably opportune to ask now. Um, yeah. One is to do with why, why is it that Australian media has actually been quite slow um, to get to this point, to actually understand this better? And, and how, how do we balance diversity versus tokenism? Is it a, a journey that we're on? So it will, it will, you know, there's transitional components to this or is there, um, because especially as a practitioner and somebody who runs an organisation, 
Um, how, how do we get this balance right? Yes, very good questions. I was just thinking about that idea of um, tokenism. Uh, and I think the, the way to remove tokenism is to normalise diversity in your workplace and, and in the activity that you're doing. So if you are sitting in a meeting and going, oh, we really need to include um, the Muslim black woman in order to um, kind of tick that box, then you're, you're, you're already, um, well, you probably have a bit of a journey to go on is, is probably <laughs> what I would suggest. So it's, it's not about employing one diverse person and ticking the box and, and moving on. It's about having a genuine commitment to creating more diversity um, in your workplace. And I think that then um, feeds back into your first question as to why it's taking so long. Um, I, I think there's just some barriers around perception to, to begin with. So this idea that because communications is very uh, language and English language focused, uh, I'm talking about the, the you know, not necessarily the, um, you know, digital web development, but there's a perception that, that um, English is a problem for um, people of multicultural backgrounds. And so if I think, I think if people are applying for jobs, and this is me guessing because I can't, I can't prove it, but um, there's a perception that if you don't have um, a, a, you know, second, third generation Australian experience, you're not going to be able to do the job in the comms industry. Um, and, and the second thing is it, it, it requires a lot of cultural shift to be genuinely diverse in your workplace. And that includes questioning um, celebration through alcohol. It, it questions your Friday nights out, you know, after a big week. It, it brings into question um, the way people speak to each other, the jokes that are told. Um, and I just don't think there's a lot of businesses that are at the point where they're genuinely willing to tackle those realities in their own workplace. Um, and I think one of the first things that businesses can do if they're really genuine about it is to develop a um, diversity and inclusion strategy, which includes a survey that goes out to, to your team to actually understand where people are at and give you a bit of a roadmap as to the behaviour change that the business needs to go through to avoid tokenism and just make it normal in your workplace. I, I think that's a really good point, Jen, but I do think um, that one has to be really informed about how one puts a diversity and inclusion strategy together um, because yep. it can become simply, again, tokenistic, um, and just sort of tick a few boxes and then you move on and you think you've, you know, you've done all the right things, but in actual fact you haven't changed anything within the culture yep. itself. Um, Asandi, just um, sort of related to this, because it, it, it does relate to the behaviour of behavioural as aspects of organisations, is if, if the media actually does want to engage more with different communities, um, what do you think it would take what, what are the things that as a community member you would be looking for from the media to, to build that sense of trust? Um, I believe, it will, it, as Jen said, it will take a while. It is, it's, a long, it's not going to be a quick, easy process. However, maybe instead of a strategy, um, we can have a quota, a, a specific percentage of how many people um, 
is a minimum to have in a workplace, you know, because it's after having one person of that particular background in there is not enough. We need more people. And there's a lot of people I know from Muslim backgrounds, from African backgrounds who are studying journalism as we speak and who are amazing writers, you know, um, but when they apply for jobs and this is a different topic, but it's hard to get accepted. They have to apply so many times before they really do get a chance, you know, um, before they're properly looked at and interviewed. Um, so, so it, it, it's a, it's bigger, it's a bigger picture, you know. Absolutely. And the recruitment part is a really important component of that. Yeah. If, if the individuals that we're talking to tonight actually think to themselves, gee, I'd like to expand my network. I'd like to actually be able to connect in with other audiences and other people and, and be able to understand them better. What, what should they do? Do they go down to Footscray and sit in a cafe or do they um, start ringing around and, and seeing if they can chat to somebody on the phone and ask a few questions? What, what's the thing that, uh, that they should do? I actually have a great idea. So yeah. when you told me about that WhatsApp group that has like a lot of different uh, people from different backgrounds in there and they're like the first to get important messages and such, I was thinking of doing something similar where, because now it's COVID, everyone's at home, it's best to keep things online, but having a big WhatsApp group or Telegram group with people or leaders from all community groups, whether it's sheikhs, pastors, sheikh, uh, priests, um, the presidents of the Indonesian community, like just leaders from all these groups and when there's an event happening whether it's here or back home they can just pop it in the group chat journalists can be in that whatsapp group chat as well and they can see what's currently happening in these communities oh it looks like the automobile community is having a protest today at the city or oh, oh it looks like um it looks like uh they're doing a diwali festival here and, and you know maybe even journalists can ask is this appropriate to say how do you guys like to be referred to as it like you know it's like a good ground for everyone to speak and learn from each other I think that would be a good idea maybe it doesn't have to whatsapp but maybe a platform where everyone yeah. can do that it, it is an interesting thing because sometimes um too that um individuals might for might get to know one person within a community and so they tend to be that's their go-to person but it doesn't actually mean that that person is representative of the broader community. Yeah. So, but but that's their go-to, and they think that they've actually built that um, that that diversity up. There are some risks, aren't there, in just having one individual from a but you know one Muslim that you might know that you then is the go-to for every type of response you want when anything is to do with that sort of issues or any issues really. 100% because within just Islam itself we have different factions different groups some people uh what one person may believe to be the correct way may be a little bit different with somebody else um so as you said yes it's really important to have at least, it's not just good to have just one person representing a whole group it's good to also realize when you're asking or when you're going for that coffee or you're asking those questions on that whatsapp group chat that you realize that you might still have to do more research on your part you know Google, thank God, is a beautiful, huge <laughs> platform <laughs> with heaps of information. Um, it's always uh, good to also make friends from diverse backgrounds. So you can always have someone to, you know, be like, oh, don't say that. Or, hey, you know, maybe you should talk about this. Or yeah. it's, it's really good. It's really good. We live in a multicultural country um, where, you know, we, it's not just one, one culture and that's it. We have so many different cultures <laughs> here. We can learn from each other um no one's perfect it's going to take a while to learn there's so many different 
you know, so many different people and different groups. Um, but it's, you just have to take that first step of uh, asking the right questions and knowing where to ask them. Absolutely. Now, um, I, I don't know if this is correct or not, so I'm just going to put it out there, which is it appears that much of the mainstream media is informed and sometimes written by agencies from a very Western perspective. Do you, do you get a sense that there is actually a lack of a broader international coverage? And does that affect the interest or the trust that they may have in that reporting? Um, that's, do, do you have a sense? So I know, Asante, that you that there have been issues that you, from the Oromo community perspective, have had to fight to get any sort of coverage of here in Australia. Do you think that that has an effect on the degree of trust that communities may have in that mainstream media that has this very Western perspective? Yes, yes, 100% yes. Um, it was so hard, so hard to just even get, like, one, uh, one like, um, we, it was so hard to raise awareness. We tried through Twitter. We tried emailing the 7pm project. We tried everything. And we're such a large population compared to the Tigrayan population who are also from Ethiopia. But they were so well organized. You could see how much the world has responded to their aid. But we felt like we were abandoned, that we weren't heard. We still feel like no one really knows who the Oromo people are. Like, they don't realize the largest population in Ethiopia are the Oromos, you know, um, and that we've been suffering currently with the current prime minister. Um, but it's all when it gets too political, we I feel like I feel like it's not something that is of an Australian concern because it's an international issue. But in situations where we need to raise awareness, we need help, we need to reach out Marissa Payne, the foreign affairs minister, or we need someone to like make an article and raise awareness to our people. Maybe Australians can help donate and help the protesters that were getting um, shot at by the military people back there. Like we needed, I wanted to help spread as much information about what's currently happening to the Oromo people, but it was so hard to do that. And you know, I feel like if we had um, avenues, the right avenues to take and the right connections or, or networks, it would have been much a much more better uh, yeah. results, you know. Um, however, um, at the end of the day, at least we did have one good thing, which was Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> the social media has really helped us in our cause beyond anything. We were number one top trending tweet for like a month or something ridiculous. We had to teach our people exactly the best times to tweet, what specific windows to tweet in, um, what to say, how to use hashtags, so that became our media. We had to take charge of our own, you know. Yeah. But it would have been great to have at least one segment on SBS or one <laughs> journalist, you know, just making one article about what's happening. It would have made a big difference. Great. Yeah. Thanks, Asante. Um, Jen, what about from your perspective? Do you, do you think that there is a lack of a really broad international coverage? Do you think we're sort of quite narrow in how we deal with other countries outside of Australia? Yeah, I think there's always been um, the tendency to report news from other Western countries first and then European countries and then and then the rest. And, look, I was actually reflecting on this question and the recent, um, the new uh, loved-up defence relationship now between the US and the UK and Australia and thinking about that and the anti-Chinese sentiment that's grown 
um, throughout COVID and reading the news and going, well, where's the Australian Chinese perspective? How do they feel about this, this rhetoric and the talk of, of Western powers when we have a, an incredibly multicultural community of people who aren't from Western countries? And, um, yeah, I think it, it risks... Um, segregating and um, prioritising our own Australian audiences through how media is reported through the news. Yeah. Do you do you think, Jen, then that um, Australia is perhaps denying the breadth of interests and knowledge in the Australian population that they're actually funneling us in a particular direction and not not really valuing where this breadth of interest actually sits? Yeah, without a doubt, and particularly um, in in our really multicultural state, so, you know, Victoria and New South Wales. And I've been doing a lot of work in Victoria around um, COVID communication out to all Victorians. And, you know, just as an example, I just wanted to kind of show you, and this is on the lighter side of things because I'm talking about influencers, the uh, very infamous Nadia Bartel, who was splashed across our newspapers for many, many days, uh, has 568,000 followers. There's, um, and, and Asante, you might um, know her, and I may be pronouncing this terribly, but Donya Dadrison is a Persian-born Australian singer, and um, she has over 2 million followers, and she's based in Melbourne. I'd never heard of her. She certainly doesn't make it into the newspaper, but she has huge influence across um, Victorians and Australians and has followers all over the world. Why haven't we... We heard of this influencer while we were <laughs> hearing about the Beck Judds and the yeah. and the um, Nadia Bartels, and we've got you know Thelma Plum, who's a First Nations influencer, and she has eighty six thousand followers. So there's there are people already in the community that are building up their platforms, building up their influence, but for some reason they're not connecting in with the mainstream platforms and vice versa. Yeah. And I think it's a missed opportunity. Yeah. Now, um, Asante, many members of various communities often seek the news from their home countries. Why, why do you think they do that? So I can take my dad, for example. He loves watching OMN, or my media network. Um, all African dads just standing right in front of the TV, <laughs> hands behind their back, seriously watching. Like For them, it's a form of familiarity. They want to know what's happening back home, and that's the only main accurate um, channel that covers what's happening to the Oromo people back home. Um, we, we have a, I don't know what the exact word for it is, but the media is controlled in Ethiopia. So not many journalists can say things without getting in trouble. Mm -hmm. um, so having OMN was really good for people who are living in the diaspora to know what's happening back home, as well as talking to family members and such. Um, it represented not only uh, you know, it didn't, it didn't just represent what uh, or breed familiarity, but it also helped us to, um, I guess, get an understanding of what's currently happening to our people. And because we're not seeing this here in Australian media or Australian news channels, um, we have to resort to that. Uh, and it's not necessarily a bad thing. However, um, it would be nice to have like, you know, how Punjabi radio exists in the um, uh, Italians have also their own uh, yeah. channels. Yeah. yeah, it would be really nice to have way more um, channels, uh, like whether it be on SBS or anywhere else, that can also showcase that. 
Al Jazeera, for example, is the only major media network I can think of that covers everyone's issues. Like they even know about the Oromos and they spoke about it before everyone else did. Um, they knew what was happening in Afghanistan quickly. Like, and um, it's not, when I look at their wording, it doesn't sound, um, it never puts that community in a negative connotation, if that makes sense. It talks, it really shows the unbiased truths of what's happening and the realities of what's happening in those areas. And that's what I really think that um, we can also learn and adapt and maybe inherit as well. Yeah, can, can I just pick up on that, but in maybe in a bit more of a challenging fashion. So many other countries, as, as you've just described, actually come from um, very single cultural media. They don't necessarily have lots of diverse representation. On, on, their, um, on their media broadcasts. But, but somehow because of our diversity um, and Australia's commitment to multiculturalism, it sort of creates an expectation that our media should be representative, should be truly internationally informed and constantly striving for improvement. Is, is that sort of a, a thing that Australia needs to embrace? Is that in actual fact, we can set ourselves apart by our ability to be as, um, as broadly representative and, and truly as internationally informed as possible. Jen, what, what's your thoughts on this? Oh, I think um, ideologically and from a social cohesion perspective, absolutely, that's what um, we should be striving for. But again, I think it gets down to if that doesn't convince people, then the pure economics should. And that is that if you can't, recognize who your audience is in this country and you don't start to cater your content to um you know consolidate and, and increase subscriptions then it's not good for business so if the ideological and the social cohesion doesn't get people across the line the economic argument should because it's a very genuine one yeah absolutely so so asante just finally um we have mainstream media, we've got social media, we've got ethnic media and print media and broadcast media. Does, does that suggest diversity in our media in, um, sort of universe, if you like? But more importantly, I think, because you've just mentioned it in, what, in your response about using Twitter, can, can these smaller media channels influence those with much larger audiences? Can they influence the bigger mainstream media? Uh, 100%. As we've seen, you know, tweets about the earthquake have been trending everywhere. <laughs> uh, people learned about the earthquake through Twitter, I feel like, <laughs> before it even got to the news. <laughs> um, yeah, the power of social media is really strong. Um, I, I've actually noticed, like, this next generation, my generation to be specific, is more... We learn our news through social media. I found out about the COVID cases through TikTok. <laughs> I found out about, you know, what was happening with the mand mandatory vaccines through um, Instagram. So um, I think that most of us can appreciate social media as being the next big televised media. Um, and because it's more of a, it's not tied down to a country, it's social media, it's global. Um, it's in it in itself um, a great way for communities to, or yeah, for many communities to jump on and advocate and entertain and etc. Um, a lot of people from my background are jumping on podcasts. They're loving that right now, currently. 
that's a really popular thing and they talk about what's currently happening in our communities and you know um a lot of the youth like to tune into those especially on the ride home like myself um a lot of people like to uh, maybe stay I would say a lot of people like to stay away from the television especially in this current climate where all we're seeing is a bombardment of negative uh, uh information that just brings down the spirit I think that's the best way to explain it um you know um I think it's a mental health has become a really big thing upside track but and I feel like it has a correlation with media and that's why it's important to you know um it's important the media reflects all aspects of our community um reflects and understands um the space that their audiences are in so that they can better cater to them right thank you Asante so, Jen, um, I'm interested in your response to that as well. And then we might move on to some questions. And the first one sort of relates to you as well. So um, what's your thoughts about how these smaller media channels can, can influence? Although I guess in some respects, calling social media a smaller channel probably isn't actually accurate. <laughs> yeah. Um, but what, what is your view about the, the influence that, that channels that are perhaps not considered mainstream can influence what is mainstream. Okay, so there's there's definite positives and, and negatives. Yeah, when when we call uh, social media platforms small, they're definitely not because they're owned by very very rich people, um, and we have such a um, lack of diversity of um, media ownership in this country that it is of real concern. Because the reality is, there's so many actually amazing um, community. Uh, media platforms out there like community radio, WhatsApp groups, lots and lots of um, smaller groups that have come together, but they rely on people's time to create the content um, and nobody's paid to do that. And so there is a lack of impartial journalism that gets published on all of these networks. Yeah. Um, and so if, if those networks, if those smaller platforms become the source of truth for people, and people are not trusting the broader platforms who have all the money and the power, um, then we've got ourselves a, a bit of a problem. And so it is really um, ideally in the best interest of mainstream media to be able to appeal to all Australians, to be able to hold that fourth estate position and, and hold that impartial journalism and um, as being so important. Fantastic. Well, now um, we'll move on to um, the questions in the chat. And in actual fact, quite a number of them relate to something that you talked about at the beginning, Jen, and have been very passionate about, which is recruitment. Yeah. Um, so particularly um, recruitment in general, how do we get more diversity in the senior editorial and management levels? But also if you are um, thinking about bringing diversity into your workplace, um, uh, there's sort of a question about, and I don't think this is what you're suggesting, but this idea of potentially ending up with quotas or people feeling like they've been brought on because they are um, simply representative of a particular community and they want to create diversity, visible diversity. Yep. Um, how, do you, how do you avoid that and how do you get people through that career uh, pathways up into that senior management role or recruit directly into it? Okay. Um, there's probably three things I can say. So the first thing is that I, I effectively altered my business model to make it more 
appealing to people from diverse backgrounds. So when um, I, I acquired a business in 2019 called Cultureverse, which is a multicultural um, marketing agency, and then we also built um, an internal uh, translations arm. So we can translate content into 58 different languages. And so all of a sudden, to me, it became hugely important to be able to recruit people from lots and lots of different language groups because it was really good for the business. And so when I started to um, put job ads together and send them out, you know, we'd put them on LinkedIn and send them through our networks, but we'd also tap into our multicultural networks and say, here's a job ad, can you please send this to your network? So it was more of those informal WhatsApp groups, um, Facebook groups, where we could actually expand out who we could um, target because I've definitely been told that there are people who may actually be trained in communications but are still resistant to apply for an agency because of the perceived barriers of a lack of diversity. So we really had to work very, very hard to bring um, people in from from different cultural backgrounds. Um, But now, you know, I just get so excited when I interview someone and I can speak five languages. I just think this is... (laughs) such a massive strength so it's completely changed for us um on the token side of things so this year um we employed our first um first nations position a guy called um professor shane hearn and i sat with shane um and said in our interview process we we had a lot of different chats before he came on board and i just had a, a really honest chat with shane to say how do we make sure that this is not a token appointment and that you don't feel like you're a token appointment. How are we going to create a relationship with each other and with you and the business to make sure that um, you become a part of the business and not just a a token add-on? And I think we as a business have worked really hard to have a conversation with Shane at the same level where he learns from us and we learn from him and he's just a genuine part of the team, but it took uh, a kind of vulnerable conversation up front to actually ask him how do we work this so that we can make it work for both of us yeah really really important point those that ability to have an open conversation and you would assume that people in PR and communications actually are quite accomplished at communications but sometimes there are things that people don't want to ask and Asante I might just um when it comes to people from different cultural backgrounds there is um often a, a fear about raising certain things. Do, do we talk to you about religion or uh, how do we have a conversation with you about um, discrimination or what, what are some of the things that, that we might, or, or even the food that you eat or, or whatever it might be? How do we, how would you like people to approach you in order to help them get over this fear of uh, some of the questions that they might not necessarily know how to ask? Um, that's a good question. So. I have been asked those questions. I have been asked them in horrible ways (laughs) in places where you would imagine professionalism, such as uh, on my paramedic placements and such. Um, However, I've also been asked these types of questions in the most beautiful ways possible. You can tell when someone's asking to learn and when they're asking to just rebut you and shut you down and not really listen. And I've had that experience, but there's some younger girls who are, like me from my background who haven't had that experience and are automatically 
uh, bullied and attacked and pushed into a corner because they couldn't recognize the person's intentions, you know? Um, but if, if someone's generally looking to ask and to learn, I definitely believe coming up to somebody and just saying, hey, how are you? You know, introducing yourselves and um, genuinely asking, hey, I really don't know about this certain thing. Or I've asked, I've been asked a lot about my hijab and whether I was forced to wear it. Instead of saying that, maybe change the wording. Maybe be like, um, so what has inspired you to wear the hijab? You know, or what is that that thing that you're wearing on your head? It's really beautiful. Can I uh, like ask you about? Like, you know, there's, there's always better ways of asking these yeah. questions, okay. and it's all really in wording. Yeah, exactly. Being respectful and exactly. approaching it as from curiosity rather yeah. than approaching it as being uh, confronting. Yes, exactly. That's that's yeah. that's all we want. <laughs> <laughs> Terrific. Um, Jen, there's been another question about ageism in journalism. Um, do we have enough mature newcomers to the profession? And is journalism welcoming uh, to a wide range of ages? What's, uh, what's your thinking about that? So I, I can't comment on journalism directly, but I can certainly comment on our industry and say that it is, I would say it's quite ageist. Um, and we... Uh, we, in terms of our commitment to um, inclusion, uh, have a diversity of ages as well. So we have some people who are just legends in their, in their industry. Um, and I find actually that the more we evolve as a business, um, it's often the young people that sometimes need to learn um, about how people with more wisdom operate in a workplace and there's often perceptions um, and, and sometimes prejudices that actually happen the other way around. And so I think at the end of the day, whether it's age or race or whatever difference there is, it's about creating a safe workplace where people can um, ask questions and be curious. And also I think through the learning process of change, feel like they can stumble a bit and 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 not feel the pressure of having to say the right thing absolutely all the time because as long as there is the motivation and the intent um, to create that safe environment, then, um, yeah, it can be a bit of a clunky journey, but it's worth it. <laughs> um, Yasmin uh, Asante has said that relegating diverse communities to niche topics like food, prayer and worship can be perceived as microaggression. Um, it's certainly something that, that we as a group feel quite strongly needs to be um, broken down, but you do need to have the right people uh, talking on the right topics. Uh, so you shouldn't be talking about worship without, uh, without having multiple voices involved in that. Um, but I think again, you, what you said before about um, style and approach uh, does have an effect on whether people perceive that as being an, um, a microaggression, an aggressive way of um, approaching those particular topics. But we've also said that we really need people from across the community talking about water safety and talking about health access and talking about, um, you know, whether or not they can get Amazon to deliver on time or whatever it might be. There's, there's, there's this sense of being, you being asked about everything rather than simply being asked about particular topics. Is, is, um, did, did you want to make any comments about that? 
Yes, um, I, I can I, I can definitely see how, and I've also experienced how it can come off as microaggressions. Um, I think it's all about space and timing. And, you know, let's say my example, when I was on my paramedic placement and I was in my first year of uni and we're on a break, like a lunch break. So um, I still expect a certain level of uh, respect and uh, maturity or professionalism from my supervisors when I'm in a space like that, because at the end of the day, they're looking after me um, and I'm in their care when I'm in that particular ambulance. So to be asked um, questions um, pertaining to my religion and then slowly, because you could tell where the questions lead to a point. And when it got to a point where it got really disrespectful, um, it was, it was already too late for me to backtrack and go, hey, I don't want to talk about this. And that's where I tie in that question about ageism. It is so important to have people with experienced backgrounds in media. I literally wouldn't have been in this position if it wasn't for my mentors, you know. Um, having mentors, having people who've gone through those and had lived experiences with the media and know what to expect and can teach you what to expect and how to re respond to certain questions or etc sorry my airpods just died <laughs> um but it's it's all important because it helps guide young minds to better tackle these issues and to fully get what they're trying to say out without compromising their people or contradicting what they believe in Absolutely. And in actual fact, you've referenced a question that came up earlier, which was to do with the importance of mentors. We really do need more people out there mentoring individuals to get into. And you mentioned that as well about your friends that are studying in this area and need more mentors to help them get into um, careers, into uh, public relations, journalism, communications, whatever it might be. Now, Rhys does raise an interesting question, uh, which is whether ageist is, um, is a occurring on purpose or not. And I, I do reflect back on what I mentioned before, that if young people are actually sourcing all in, well, in actual fact, they're not going anywhere near mainstream television or mainstream print media. They're getting it all from somewhere else. So if it's the older demographics that are actually watching mainstream television, is, is there, is that, um, are we simply catering for that experience, that familiarity, that trust that those newsreaders have built up all of those years for that particular audience? Is there a reason why we should be more inclusive even for older audiences if, it, if the young ones that might be demanding it more actually aren't even there? That's a good question, Jen. You want to take <laughs> <one>? <laughs> yeah. Thanks a lot, Rhys. Um, <laughs> I, I, I think it gets down to the proliferation question and whether we want our really um, dominant, powerful media platforms to only cater to a certain subset of our Australian community. And I think that's no good for democracy because we all vote. So I just think it is a backward, uh, if there is a, an intentional discrimination to only go for the, for the rusted on, the bolted on, <laughs> <laughs> then that is not a smart business strategy and it also undermines the democratic principle of the fourth, the fourth estate. So I just, yeah, it would be a shame. Um, but I think in a subconscious way it's not changing because, because of the challenges 
of the change to embrace more diversity. Yeah, and and perhaps some of us some of us that are demanding it need to um, need to accept that it will be transitional and that there will be you know it'll take a few steps to get there, but of course we'd like it to happen sooner rather than later. Now I think we've actually moved our way through most of the questions that I've um, that I've seen there. So unless there's any more to come through, I thought I might ask whether um, Asante you had some final words that you might like to say to our audience. Um, if you could wave a magic wand and have an influence over all those that were listening, what's the things that you would like them to do going forward if they want to expand the audiences that they're talking to? Okay, so I have a range of ideas. Some may not seem as realistic or as quick to implement straight away, but they're, they're short-term and long-term goals. Um, so definitely that WhatsApp group or Telegram group, a platform where we have members from all diverse backgrounds, um, you know, of course, not just one token person from each group, at least five from each group and whoever wants to join in are free to join in. It should be a space where um, journalists can learn from these diverse groups. It could also be a space where they can retrieve information for what's currently happening in these diverse groups. Um, that's a first um, step towards in, uh, increasing and improving the diversity we're seeing in our mainstream media. Um, secondly, I think it would be great to uh, create bigger dialogues, not just with um, your main target audience that you have now, but to encourage more viewers from more different types of audiences, especially from younger people or from uh, people from all walks of life. I feel like it would be better to either have panels where we invite them like panels like such as these where they, we invite them and get more suggestions and more ideas on how we can better um, and improve our media system um, and lastly I'd like to just say you know when when you your wording matters so <laughs> when you make an article or a report about a specific particular person from a particular group um, it's really important to be culturally sensitive whether they're a murderer or they're a student that is at school um, when the way you would the way you use your wording around that person or particular persona will reflect on the entire community you know so um, you won't you would be you'll be good you'd have your viewers you'd post your journal but I'll be going onto a train and getting spat at because of that article, because of someone's reaction to it, you know? So mm -hmm. it is real. Real people do see, um, they do read these things, they do look into it and they make their own conclusions. So um, ensuring that you stay as positive as you can, regardless of how much viewers you can, you will get is my main, um, I guess, cry mm -hmm. for help. <laughs> Thank you, Asandi. There has been a late question, though, that sort of relates to that. If, if a journalist wanted to go and find um, somebody who was an engineer or someone who was a, um, a nurse or a doctor or um, somebody who had a particular trade in, a, an, in an area and they wanted some commentary on Australia's infrastructure or whatever it might be, how do they go about finding those professionals within the, the, your community or broader um, African-Australian communities or others? 
Um, well, within my family, you had all those three jobs already in there. <laughs> uh, my brother's an engineer, my mom's a nurse, been working in Australia for almost 30 years. And uh, my dad's, a, he's got a master's degree in forestry and agriculture, you know. Um, so it's almost about coming back to grow your network and yeah. those networks will introduce you to the 100%. people that you want to know. So I, yeah. I wasn't joking about going and sitting in a coffee house in Footscray. Yeah. You will meet people and people will will come to trust you and know who you are. So exactly. Um, yeah. Jen, I might just ask you, I'm starting to look like something out of a Halloween program. So, <laughs> so I might ask you, Jen, for your final <laughs> notes before, <laughs> before I turn into an entire skull. Um, Jen, Jen, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think um, just on that question, like I worked with um, Carol Schwartz um, with the Women in Media, Women for Media initiative a number of years ago to help get you know, business women um, connected in with journalists so there'd be more um, business women um, commentary in the business pages. And I think um, Media Diversity Australia, if I'm not wrong, was actually doing a call out for people who kind of wanted to get trained up and, and be engaged. And it might be in the first instance that there's there needs to be that database of people from mm-hmm. different um, cultural backgrounds who happen to be engineers or want to be profiled for work at home you know, um, homeschooling stories. Because yeah. I think um, my point, final point is that um, probably the two biggest examples of where the media has really created a problem with with reporting is around, you know, African youth gangs as well as uh, the depiction of um, Muslims and um, ISIS terrorism. And from my perspective, if we just had more stories about amazing African youth who are doing amazing things or even just homeschooling their kids or, you know, having trouble going to uni because of um, COVID um, and, you know, Muslim people who are the, the engineers and, and um, being profiled in the business pages, then at least um, there is a counter narrative but if all people read about is African gangs and, you know, ISIS threats of, you know, Muslim terrorism, then that is the only um, lens by which readers are going to see cultures or religions or ethnicities that they don't have a direct connection with. So I just think that importance of broadening the lens, bringing more diversity into the workplace that ultimately leads to more diversity in case studies and the people that media are talking to is just a great way to to level it all out. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Jen. Thank you, Asante and Jen, um, so much for being a part of this. <coughs> it's um, it's um, been a fascinating discussion and I've really enjoyed it myself. So um, I really appreciate all the time that you've given to, to making this happen. It's um, It's been interesting and informative and I hope all our guests have enjoyed it as well. Um, we hope that we might have brought you some new thoughts, um, how to expand your audiences and to consider some of the ways that we might have limited our ability to extend our networks in the past. Um, please look out for the final session in this series, which will be held in November, and the information sheet that outlines some of the questions we discussed today. This will arrive by email in the next day or so. On that note, thank you all for joining us and do enjoy your evening, and I'm going to go and turn the lights on. <laughs> thank, you. thank you everyone thank you thanks, 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 thanks for thank you. see you bye, bye.